Well, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Romans, and we are just breezing right through this, just hitting the high points and moving on. Not really. We're really getting deep into it. And um, I want to bring to your attention something that Paul is doing here that is not as obvious as we might think it is from the text itself. So you have to you have to ask the question, why is Paul doing this? Why is the first thing out of the block, as soon as he talks about the gospel in 16 and 17, why does he start in 18 with the wrath of God? You've got to ask your question, the question, why does he do that? Why, is it, why doesn't Paul start with the love of God in Christ, who, who lived and died and rose again? Why did, he, why did he begin his conversation, his teaching? This is... This is the, the, the beginning of the teaching of Paul. Why did he begin it with the wrath of God? And, and how is that so vastly different from the way we begin our teaching today? So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, there's no one like you. There's no one beside you. You alone are God. You alone are right. You alone are true. You alone are holy and righteous. And we bless you and we praise you and we glorify your name. We want to know your word. We want to love your truth. We want to, to obey you. We, 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 we want to delight ourselves in you. We have formed a judgment about you, God. And we have judged you to be the treasure of the universe. All that we know about you from the scriptures, all that we know about you from observing nature, has caused us to, to see you as the treasure of the universe. And so we love you and we want to please you. We do not want to dishonor you in any way. And Lord, one of the best ways that we can please you is by knowing what you have said and by understanding what you have said and then by living our life with abandon to obey what you have said. And so, Father, in order to do that, we have to study the Bible. We have to chew it and, and meditate on it. We have to, uh, like a cow chews its cud, we have to ponder it, we have to contemplate it, we have to think about it, and then, and then seek to see avenues and ways and circumstances and situations in which we can obey it, obey your word. So help us to understand the word of God today. Help me as I teach, guard my tongue from error, Guard these that you have gathered here this morning and those that are watching by means of the internet, the common grace of the internet now and those who will watch at some later point. Guard their minds and their hearts that they will hear only the truth so that you alone can be glorified and that, that we may get the benefit. In Jesus Christ's most precious name I pray. Amen. Okay. There is a, there is a um, very important issue that Paul is dealing with from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.23. So it's the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and most of chapter 3 that is one single thought, and we, we usually don't teach it as one single thought. It's a very long passage that, that Paul was dealing with, but the issue that is at hand 
is an issue that, believe it or not, still exists in the in the world today about why people find fault with Christianity. The the rest of the world, the the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, the Muslim world, the Taoist world, the Shinto world, uh, the animist world, the the dialectic materialistic world, the atheistic world, all criticize Christianity for some of the same reasons. And one of the reasons is um, that the way we portray God in salvation, that we are justified, that we are forgiven, and that we are made righteous because we believe, that that devalues God, that that makes God look stupid, that that makes God look like he's, that sin doesn't matter. And in fact, one of the criticisms of the gospel of Jesus, this is the, this is the main one of all the criticisms, and it still exists today. Jewish scholars, Muslim scholars, Buddhist, Hindu scholars, all of these other people that have, understand these other false religions, uh, and yes, I just included Judaism in with false religion because it is a false religion. It's not a, a religion that seeks to obey the Old Testament. Um, all of these false religions in one way or the other teach that you have to do something to earn God's favor. You have to do something to become attractive to God. You have to do something to make God look at you and and think you're good enough to be uh, forgiven. And And the reason they think that way is because to think that we can be forgiven by believing and not by doing something seems silly to those people. It's ridiculous. Our sins are grievous. Our sins are terrible. We have offended a holy God repeatedly by our sins. And you're trying to tell me that all I have to do is believe and then I can be forgiven? And the Jewish scholars will quote Proverbs 17, verse 15. I'd like you to look at that that verse with me for just a second. Proverbs 17, verse 15. And this is the basis, one of the, yeah, Proverbs 17, 15. Now, I use the NASB update 95 in this church because it it is one of the most accurate versions of the of the Bible that you can find and I'm I'm becoming more and more convinced that the legacy standard Bible that has just been put out by John MacArthur's group in California has is going to surpass the NASB in accuracy so if you would read um, that verse, Sister Charlotte, you got to get a mic. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Right. So what is the, the first part of that is what? He who justifies what? The wicked. The wicked. Okay. So anybody who justifies the wicked. Now, what is the word justify? It's a it's it's a it's a 
you, you got to get your Greek hat on plus your Latin hat on. Justification, two things happen in the process of salvation on the part of salvation called justification. Two things happen, not one, two things. What happens in justification? Well, you're forgiven. We're forgiven of all of our sins and... And made righteous. And we're made righteous, right. Now, why, why, why is not being forgiven enough? Well, the scripture says that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, that we will in no likewise inherit heaven. So we've got to be made righteous. Right. How righteous? Just as righteous as God is. Just as righteous as God. If you want to be with God, you've got to be like God. Okay. Be ye holy, holy for I am. Exactly. I'm not talking about being deity. I'm not talking about being God. I'm talking about being like him. So you want to spend eternity in heaven, you have to be as righteous as God himself is righteous. That's the problem. It's not that, that I smoked a cigarette. It's not that I dropped acid or that I slapped somebody or that I robbed a bank even. It's that I'm unrighteous. I'm sinful and I'm unrighteous. Now you say, well, that's the same thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. I am unrighteous because I'm sinful, but I'm unrighteous anyway. I'm unrighteous anyway. Not just because I do bad things, but because I do not love God perfectly. We're born unrighteous. We're, bo we're born unrighteous. We're born sinful Before we've too. done anything. Right, right. We're actually conceived right, in, in sin. iniquity. Okay, before we're born which is why unborn babies die. What sin did they commit? Yeah, but they, were, they weren't born. The unborn babies die. I'm not talking about abortion. Unborn babies die because they're sinful. Death comes from sin. Death comes from sin. Death comes from sin. Death comes from sin. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you robbed a bank, now you're going to get cancer and die. There's not the direct link like that. Although robbing a bank's not a good thing for you to do. But the reason you rob the bank is because you're already lost. You're already sinful. The point is that, that, that we are conceived in our mother's womb as lost and fallen and sinful. We, are not, we not only have the sin nature of Adam, where as soon as we're old enough to grow up, we, we're going to do bad things, but we're also personally guilty of the sin of Adam because we sinned when Adam sinned because we were in Adam's loins when he sinned and the book of Hebrews that's called the, the federal headship rule and the book of Hebrews with with Melchizedek uh, is the one when the writer was talking about Melchizedek that's when this started and so in as in Adam all die not in Eve not in the serpent as in Adam, all die. And so death comes because, because of sin and because all have sinned. Well, how do babies sin? They didn't personally commit any sin, but they are guilty of the sin of Adam. Now, this is why the Roman Catholic Church baptizes babies, because they say that infant baptism washes away original sin. Now, we don't believe in that, right? All right, well, then why do Protestants baptize babies? 
Because they're caught up in the bad teaching of the... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's not biblical. And you can go back early, early, early to the early church, and they didn't baptize babies. There's a book called the Didache, and it, it's not inspired, but it tells you how church services were conducted, how baptisms were conducted in the early church. I'm talking about the ancient church, the 100s, the 200s, the 300s. And it always talks about believers' baptism, always, 100% of the time. Doesn't mention infant baptism. You got to know what you're repenting of and what you're believing in in order to be saved. So baptism does not save us. We don't believe that. The Church of Christ is wrong. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong. Now, the Presbyterians will tell you, well, infant baptism doesn't save anybody. We agree with that. Well, what does it do? Well, it puts them in the covenant. What does that mean? That they're going to get saved? Well, not necessarily. Well, what does it mean? Well, does it mean they're, they've got one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth? No, that doesn't mean that. Is it, are they more likely to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? It's like when Baptist churches dedicate babies, what are we doing? Where'd you find that in the Bible? You're dedicating the, the what, what does that do to the child when you dedicate it? Is it saved? No. Is it more likely to be saved? Well, not necessarily. Well, what, what, what did you just do to that baby? It's a fictitious, made-up, man-made thing that people do, and I'm going to get all kind of bad mail now because I've angered parents and grandparents. Well, you don't want us to dedicate our babies. No, I want you to come to church and raise them in the fear and the nurture of the Lord is what I want you to do. So what we ought to do when babies are born is pray for the parents and stand beside the parents and, and help them and, and, and make a covenant with the parents to help them raise that baby. So every one of us in the church are supposed to be godfathers and godmothers to these newborn babies. We need to come alongside the parents and help them raise their children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. That's what's going to do infinitely more good than putting water on a baby's forehead or dunking a little baby under the water. It's ridiculous on its surface. And, and so Paul was not talking about baptism, but Paul was talking about how in the world can God forgive the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? Because he said whoever pardons the, the justifies the wicked is an abomination. That's what it says, right? So God is in a fix now. He's painted himself into a corner. By get, is, is the Old Testament infallible? Is it inspired? Yeah. Now, it's also incomplete, but it's infallible and inspired, and it's inerrant. So the Old Testament plainly teaches that if you justify the wicked, you are an abomination to God. But that's what God did to every one of us. He justified us while we were yet sinful, right? Okay, well, then is God an abomination to himself? No. How do you get out from underneath this? That's what Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, all of chapter 2, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 23 is about. That's why it's in the Bible. I'm trying to give you the context of why this is in the Bible. Now, I know everybody just takes verses 18 through 32 to condemn homosexuality and all of this other stuff, and it does condemn homosexuality. It's very clear about it, but... That's not why it's in the Bible, to condemn homosexuality. It is in the Bible as a longer 
issue, much longer issue than the end of verse chapter one that talks about how God can justify the wicked and still remain righteous himself and not be an abomination to himself. So that's what I was trying to illustrate to you. So we've gone, we've gone through a lot of this already, uh, but let's read this passage again. Brother Don, would you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 out loud for us, dear man? It's not in your handout I gave you today, but it's in the Bible and it's on the front page of the original handout. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have all have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts their foolish heart was darkened. Confessing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of an in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the nature, the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire t- toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a deprived depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness wickedness greed envy full of evil full of envy murder strife deceit malice they are gossips slanders haters of god insolent arrogant boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy unloving unmerciful and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them boom there's the word of the living God right there New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus Christ where Jesus brought in grace and truth right this is after the resurrection okay And Paul said that those who do such things are worthy of death. That's what he said. That's what it says. Now, I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I didn't write this. Paul wrote this. The Holy Spirit moved on Paul to write this. So my point is that this this is a mystery because how do people suppress the truth? How How does that happen? So we went through this study and we, 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 
I want you to turn to page 19 on your handout, and um, we've gone through, the, I, asked, I asked several questions, let me back up just a second, I want to remind everybody where we are, um, I am um, in the first section of this section, I'm looking at verses 18 and 19, that's what we're doing, that's what we've been doing for several weeks now, looking at verses 18 and 19, discussing this. And then as, as a result of Paul writing verses 18 and 19 at the bottom of page 2, I ask four questions. What is the wrath of God? How is God's wrath against all unrighteousness and ungodliness? Number three, how do men suppress the truth and unrighteousness? And number four, what does verse 19 teach? And so we went for another 17 pages on all, all of that. And now we've come to the fourth point of this first section, verses 18 and 19, and we're looking at what does verse 19 teach. So, uh, Sister Charlotte, if you would, would you please read verse 19 again for us? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Boom. So, it is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So God was faithful, God was just, and he gave every, he took away everybody's excuse, I didn't know, I didn't know. Well, yeah, you did. Yes, you did. And, 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 and there's two, two main characteristics of God that the Bible says in verse 20, everybody sees, everybody knows about. What are those two invisible attributes of God that everybody sees and everybody already knows. His eternal power and divine nature. There it is. His eternal power and divine nature. That's in verse 20. So we're, so, and, in, and he did that at the end of verse 20 so that they are without excuse. So nobody can stand before God. Nobody can stand before God and say, if only I would have known I would have served Jesus because they know enough to bow their knee, and they know enough not to smoke dope. They know enough not to be perverted. They know enough not to commit adultery. They know enough not to curse God. They know enough to be faithful. They know enough, and so they are without excuse. And that should lead, what they see in the, in the created world, what we call nature, those two attributes that we see clearly displayed all throughout the created universe should then cause us to be curious enough to want to understand more about this God that we now see displayed in nature. So why are people not more curious today? Why, why are people satisfied with not knowing? Throw, throw some ideas at me. Well, I, Thursday, when out of nowhere this storm blew up, and I went outside before I knew it was there, quickly came back in, and my grandson was looking out the front door. Grandmother, did you see the storm? And I watched the tree in the front yard, and I'm thinking that tree's going to come down right now just out of nowhere. And man is going to build a totem pole, as you call them, 
and bow down and worship that dead piece of wood. Right. That dead piece of wood could not have blown a storm up. That's right. Out of nowhere. That's right. That's where right. it's going to blow that tree down right. where they've made their totem pole. So why do people do that? Well, it's easy. Why? How is it easy to be so silly and unintelligent and anti-intellectual and go against common sense? Arrogance in our own mind that we're our own God. Right. And he tells you, your foolish heart will be darkened. Right. Your foolish heart will be darkened. So you'll believe a lie. You make an exchange. You think that totem pole, that wooden tree, that you cut half of it to make firewood and the other half you carve figures and back then they carved figures of people figures of birds and animals and all that but but let's just go to the modern 21st century idols like automobiles or like a nice house or like a guaranteed retirement account or whatever we love whatever we 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 worship a football team whatever and and we're willing to go to any length no 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 exercise no uh no, no, nothing that I can do or say is too much for this idol of mine. Okay, that's worship. That's what worship is. I so value whatever this is that I'm willing to, to sacrifice for it. I'll get in a car and drive three hours to get to a stadium so I can stand in line for another three hours to sit in the hot sun and watch people chase a pigskin all over the field. Okay, and pay big money for it. Pay big money for it and help those people become multimillionaires. Now, that just doesn't make sense. That's just, well, it's just a, it's a sport, Brother Blair. Well, then sports are an idol. Sports have become an idol. Have you ever wondered why of all the, all the, they got, there's seven days in a week. Why has the Lord's Day become the largest sports day in the United States? Is that not an attack against God? Satan behind it. Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go to hell because you play football. And I'm not going to say you're going to go to hell because you watch football. That's not the point. That's not the point. Understand what's behind all of this. Does sports not take people out of church? Okay. Why would God do that? Satan would take you out of church on a Tuesday or a Thursday if if church was on a Tuesday or a Thursday. Right, right. They'd make that day the biggest sports day. And then, and now we've got this thing called the Super Bowl, and churches actually cancel their services so their people can stay home and watch the Super Bowl. Now, if that's not an idol, if that's not the definition of an idol, I don't know what is. Now you say, well, golly, Brother Blair, you don't want us to have any fun. I'm, I, I'm not the one that wrote that. I think God wants me to be happier than, than anything else. And I've never known more joy, never had more peace, never been more satisfied, never had more contentment than when I'm bowed down and humble at Jesus' feet and striving to obey him. So, yeah, I believe in being happy. I want to be happier than I am even right now. But I know that the path to my happiness is not sin. The path to my happiness is not getting as far away from God as I can. What has historically, historically in the United States been the two things that kept, especially young men, out of church? Hunting and fishing. Is that not historic? Don't we have books written about it? Don't we have songs written about it? Okay, so football has replaced that now. And so today's the first day of the NFL kickoff, and the pressure is on pastors all over this town to end their service by 12 o'clock so people can be home for the kickoff. That's a fact. 
I have been told by pastors on this coast that I am being silly and uh, uh, I'm being uh, uh, ridiculous for expecting people to stay in church after 12 o'clock on Sunday. People got things to do, Brother Blair. You can't expect them to sit there and listen to an hour service. And my response is, it depends on how hungry they are. If they're not hungry, 15 minutes is too long. And there seems to be an awful lot of people that no longer are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and yet they say they're saved. I'll tell you that I don't know why anybody would think they're saved if they're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And if they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then the churches would be filled rather than the football stadiums. Just saying. Okay. Now, so we also went, so because we're trying to figure out what it looks like for people to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're trying, that's a phrase that we, that we automatically exclude ourselves from. Well, we don't ever do that. I've never done that. I would never do something like that. Well, somebody's doing it because the Bible says that they're doing it. And, and it's the people that know God. It's not the people that don't know God. It's the people that know God. They just don't love him as God, nor do they worship him, nor are they grateful for God. But they know all about God. There's a verse in James, and, and, and it's, it's troubled me ever since I was saved at 16. It said that the devils believe. You believe there's one God, you do well. The devils believe, and they tremble. They shudder. Okay. Well, that's somebody that knows the Bible, knows God, and yet they're not saved, right? They can't go to heaven. They can't repent. They know God is going to damn them at the end of all time, and yet they cannot repent. God does not allow them the ability or the desire to repent, and so they're angry, right? They're angry because they have but a short time. Okay, now, those are fallen angels. We know Lucifer is the, the archangel that fell and became Satan when he fell, and then there's a third of the angels of heaven that fell with him. Those are the demons. We know that. I believe in demons. I believe that people are demon-possessed. I believe that, that, that uh, there is a way to relieve people from being demon-possessed. But what, what does it mean, and, and, and would I be better off, what does it mean to suppress the truth, and would I be better off by knowing what it looks like so that I can make sure I'm not doing it. In other words, I can just say, well, I'm not doing that. Like, the love of money is the root of all sorts of it. Well, that doesn't apply to me because I don't love money until I don't have enough of it or until I lose it and see how much you want it. Because everybody in the Bible that lost their soul because they lusted after more of this world's goods were poor people, not rich people. The rich people don't lust after more wealth because they've already got it. It's the poor people that want what the rich people have got. And we're hearing a lot about that in our country right now because to be successful in this country has been deemed to be bad and to, 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 it's, it's unfair and therefore you need to give your wealth back to the government so the government can distribute it to everybody equally. Well, be careful when you're siding with that because the next thing they're coming for is your land. 
Why should you own 10 acres and everybody else can't? So private ownership of land and keeping your own, what you have worked for to earn, you get to keep it, are cornerstones of our democracy. The difference between a democracy and a republic, a constitutional republic, is in a democracy, if 51% say, I can come get your property, they can do it. In a republic, 51% say, we want to come get your property, they're stopped because the Constitution stops them from doing that, even though 51% want it. So it, the, there's a piece of paper that says no. That's what stops. That's the difference. You don't want democracy. You don't want pure democracy. It's evil. France had a revolution right after the United States had a re revolution, and the French Revolution was evil and horrific, while the United States Revolution was right and good and it produced godly results. Okay. So we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 to get an idea of what it means to suppress the truth. So, Brother Don, if you would read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10b through 12. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So there's something called the love of the truth mm -hmm. that you have to what? Receive. You don't already have it. You've got to receive it. They did not receive the love of the truth and it's connected to being saved, isn't it? Okay, look at verse 11. For this reason. What God, reason? They did not receive the love of the that truth. They did not receive the love of the truth. Right, they knew the truth. It was given to them, presented to them. It was all around them. It was given to them, but they did not. They had the truth, but they didn't love the truth. Okay, if you don't love the truth, you're not saved. And because they didn't love the truth, for this reason, God will do what? God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now, what does that tell you about God and us? God's in control and we're not. Of what? God is in control of what? Well, yeah, but specifically in that verse. About receiving the love or the truth? The truth. He's, 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 in other words, the reason you believe the truth, the reason you understand the truth, the reason you love the truth is not because you study the Bible. That's, that would give you the glory. You understand the Bible because God has allowed you to understand the Bible. You have received, you have been given as a gift, a love for the truth that others have not been given. Obviously, they don't love the truth. Why do you love the truth and they don't? Because you're better than they are? Because you're doing more than they are? Because God thinks you're greater than they are? No, it's because God gave you something that is precious that he has not, at least not today, given to the other people, right? Okay, which means God is in charge of what we believe, not us. Now, this does terrific damage to the concept of human free will and human self-determinism, that we think we're the master of our destiny, we're the captain of our ship. And by George, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that because I will tell myself what I'm going to do and nobody else is going to boss me around. So, 
That's a lie. Because the Bible says in verse 11, God will send upon them a what? A what? A deluding influence so that, this is the end result of why he sends them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false. What's another way, way that God described that kind of frightening power that God has in the Bible with Pharaoh? It doesn't say God gave him a deluding influence so he will believe what is false. What does the Bible say about Pharaoh? God gave, God hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Oh no, God would never do that. So verse 11 is not in the Bible. The Bible says right here, for this reason. What reason? They did not receive a love for the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Isn't that what it says? Okay, is that not frightening? Well, how do I know God hadn't done that with me? Maybe I believe what's false. How do I know? No, I know because I love the truth. That's what stops that. It's for this reason that God does it. So if you already have received a love for the truth, you are exempt from that. So the truth is the shelter that keeps me safe from God. Right, not, not, not assist you in being free. It will make you free. So I use this all the time in my Bible study over in Mandeville when we're talking about human self-determination or human free will or our ability to decide, our ability to be free moral agents, our ability to choose. Now, you're Abraham, and it's just a normal Thursday, and you're worshiping a totem pole, and you're just doing your normal thing. You don't have any conscience. You don't have any knowledge of God. There's no Bible to read. There's no book to look at. And all of a sudden, God speaks to you and says, get up and go to another country. Why did God speak to him? Because Abraham was worshiping a totem pole? Was he worshiping God? No. Did he know God? No. Did he say, I wish God would speak to me? No. So, God did something to him, for him, through him, in him. God did something without permission, right? What else did he do with Abraham without permission? He said, you and your wife are going to have a son. What if he didn't want a son? Did God say, would you like a son? I got an idea, Abraham. Would you like to have a little boy? He didn't, do, God said, you will have a son. Then he told him what to name the boy, right? Okay. And then when Abraham flubbed the dub and, and got, his, got his, his wife's slave pregnant, and he had, she had a boy, Abraham said, yeah, Ishmael, blessed be Ishmael. He said, God said, no, no. From Sarah will be your progenitor. Well, did, hey, Sarah, would you like to get pregnant again? 90, 90 years old? No asking, no, 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 uh, 
here's something I'd like to submit for your approval. Or here's some hints about what might help your life be better. Nothing like that. God just telling him what to do, right? No, no, there's no conference going on. God is in charge and God says, do this and do that. You will do this and you will do that. And then I'm going to change your name. Now, you can dance around this. All, all you theologians out there that talk, think I'm wrong about this, you can dance around this all you want to. But I'm just looking at this for what it is. This is God violating the stew out of Abraham's will. He's not doing it once or twice. He's doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Right? It's the only way to look at it. And you believe the father of many nations. Abraham's going, yay. I mean, I mean. Yeah, he could have left them alone till the termites ate the pole. And he could have gone to Boaz or Zebulani or whatever the other guy's names were. He didn't. He went to Abram. Why? He chose him. God chose Abraham before he made the world. He didn't make no mistake. He didn't make no mistake, and he didn't apologize for it. Now, God's pushing his weight around and acting like he's God, right? Now, let me tell you about another insult to human self-determination and an unfair thing and an unreasonable thing that God did. The promised land was already inhabited when the Jews got there, right? There were people been on that land for centuries. For centuries. How do I know that? Because the Bible says they were in captivity for 400 years. Okay, now those people didn't know God. The Bible tells us that. And later on, God told Joshua to go in and kill them all. Kill the children, kill the babies, kill the dogs, kill the horses, kill the cattle, kill everybody. I'm, I'm, I say that all the time, and people just go apoplectic when I talk like this. I said, maybe you'd like to be a Hindu or a Buddhist because Christianity believes in the, in the genocide of the Canaanites. The Bible speaks about it. I didn't write that. I'm not making God out to be a monster, even though Christopher Hitchens says he was. He wasn't. He's God. Now, right, right. So my point is, you're, you're, you're Mohammed, and you've got little Abdul and little Farah, little boys, and you're farming, you're, putting, you're, you're mending fences one Thursday afternoon, and you see some guys coming over the hill, and you don't know who's fixing to come on your property because that should be your property as long as you've been alive. It was your daddy's property before that. It was his daddy's property before that. You have fought skirmishes to keep other people from getting that land, and you won. And now these other guys are walking over the hill coming towards you, not a lot of them, but a band, and you tell little Abdullah and little Farah to go back to Mama because you don't know who these people are, and you get your sword ready, because you may have to go to war right here. And they walk up on your property, and they say, how you doing? And you say, I'm fine. What you doing on my property? Well, you'll be getting off the property now, because God has given it to us. Yeah, I don't think so. Now we're going to war. And God, God fought for the Jews against the, against the Canaanites, Right? Now, that is the epitome of unfairness. 
Is it not? What did the Jew do to earn that? Did God say, maybe I'll, you know, I'll think about giving you some property that's not inhabited. That would have been better, right? But he purposefully offended a whole race of people to give it to other sinners who weren't right with him either. See, it's easy for us to understand God when the earth opens up and swallows people. That's an act of God. Nobody did that. It's easy when we see a tidal wave come in. It's easy when we see a tornado or hurricane. That's God. That's God. Okay, fine. It's harder when God uses other people to enact his judgment. And it's especially hard for us to see God when God uses bad people to inflict his judgment on God's own people. But did God not do that repeatedly in the Old Testament? So for the last 6,000 years, the Canaanites and their descendants have been mad at the Jews and their descendants because they stole their land. They stole their land. Now, we get in church, and we all got our tie and coat on, and we got our fluffy feathers on, and we're just the happiest fat tick on a sow's ear because that's God's chosen people. Sure, man, it's fine. It's fine that God was unfair. It's fine that God told Joshua to murder children, babies. That's fine. That's God's chosen people. Okay. Well, well, wait a minute. What if you're descended from the Canaanites? You don't think it's so funny, do you? So let me clue you in on some. Everybody on this coast is living on Indian property. Every one of us. You going to give your land back to the Indians? I don't think. I don't think. But I'm just showing you how throughout history there's been this tension between groups of people, and God's been in the middle of all of that. And he didn't choose the Jew because they were easy to work with. He didn't choose the Jew because they were better at obeying him. He called them stiff-necked and hard-hearted a hundred times, right? Why did he choose the Jew? Because he loved them. He set his love upon them for no other reason than he loved them. Now, the question that, that's before us this morning is, is that okay? Okay, that's why you're saved. That's the only reason you're saved. Because in addition to God choosing the Jew to, to operate in the nation of Israel under the old covenant, God chose you same time he chose the Jew to be saved in Jesus Christ under the new covenant. That's the only reason you're saved. You're not saved because you love God. You love God because you've already been born again. And the reason you're born again is not because you initiated it. You didn't pray about it. You didn't want it. You didn't ask for it. God violated your will when you were lost. He chased you down. He opened your eyes, opened your ears, and opened your heart and changed your nature without your permission. Thank you, God. And, and everybody that that's happened to is grateful. Now, I know that there are probably theological terms that make this sound more palatable to us. That's what happened. And so here's God, because that tells me that what I that, that God is in charge of what I believe. Why did Jesus speak to the people in parables? 
so that certain people would not understand him. That's what he said himself, right? To golly, Brother Blair, you're, you're just talking stuff that's making Jesus look terrible. No, I'm talking stuff that make Jesus look like Lord. He's God. God's been doing this from day one. And he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't act like it's wrong. He doesn't say, whoops. He doesn't do any of that. I was in a church in, in Tennessee, one, a huge church, f- packed out with people, probably 1,500 people in the church service that morning. And the preacher said that God picked a fight between Cain and Abel by accepting Abel's sacrifice and rejecting Cain's. And the reason Cain got mad and killed Abel was God's fault. And I told him that he was blaspheming God. That what God does is right. What God does is right. Now, the reason I don't think it's right, the reason I get bum-fuzzled about what God, because I'm wrong. And I want to bring God down to my level and make God obey me. So I want to create a God that's after my image and after my likeness. That's what's going on in Romans 1, 18 through 32. They don't like the God of the universe. They don't like the God that is. They don't like the true only one God. They like the God they've invented in their own minds. And so they're going to reject this one true and living God. So this is not being neutral toward God. These are not people who are victims of Satan. These are people who are, who are guilty perpetrators who are hostile toward God. And you say, golly, Brother Blair, you're making them sound terrible. Why do you think God throws them into hell? Because they're innocent? Because they're victims? That would make God unjust, would it not? Now, everything I found that I've been talking about this morning, I know it's hard. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I got you. I got you. I got you. But the only thing I care about, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Because if I'm talking about what the Bible teaches, then I'm right. I'm only right when I agree with the Bible. All right. So these people did not receive the love of the truth. Now, so God sent them a deluding influence that so they would believe what is false. To what end, Brother Don? Verse 12. In order that they may all, no, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. How can they believe the truth when God sent them a deluding influence? That's the argument in Romans, Romans chapter 9. That's the argument that people make today. But 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote Romans, that was the argument. What do you mean, Paul? What are you talking about? God sent them a deluding influence. Then if God did that, then how are they supposed to believe? They can't believe if God doesn't allow them to believe. And he says, that's right. And they said, well, that's not fair. And what's Paul's response in Romans 9? He says, no, who are you who replies against God? Shall the thing made say to the maker, why did you make me like this? When you make a cake and it don't turn out the way you want to, do you feel the liberty to throw it away? Do you? Why? You made it. Right. and, And wives do this. Husbands don't care. I promise you husbands don't care. But wives want their kitchen to look a certain way, right? That's their domain. Okay. Why, why do they do that? Why do they put 
decorations on the top of cabinets that nobody even looks up and sees. Because you want it. You want it. Okay. Now, okay. You, but, but why do you, why, why does your living room painted a certain color? Why do you drive a certain color car? Why did you, you want it. You wanted it. You, you choose what you love. You choose what you want. You choose what you desire. And it's fine. I'm not saying that's bad. That's how we choose. We don't choose contrary to our loves, wants, and desires unless we're under coercion, unless we're being threatened. And even then, it's hard. I'm being threatened with a gun, your money or your life. I'm being coerced, but I'm still, I don't value my money as much as I value my life. So I'll give you my money in a heartbeat. I'm not going to die over money. Okay? I'll die for Jesus. I'll die for my wife, but I'm not going to die over money. But my point is, that's what we, that's why we choose what we choose. So yes, we choose all day long. Yes, we have a will. Yes, but our will is not free. We choose what we love. Well, why do we love what we love? Why do lost people love sin and self? Because it's in their nature. So really what's wrong with lost people is not their sins. Sins are like fever. It's a symptom of a greater problem. The reason people sin is because they already don't see Jesus as the treasure of the universe. That's the problem. So their eyes are blind to the glory of God in Christ. Okay, Satan has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. That's why Satan blinds their minds because if you see that, you'll be changed. That's what happened to us when we were saved. We saw, figuratively speaking, in our mind, we saw the beauty of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and it's, and, and it's only gotten better since then. We know him better now than we used to. We know him more intimately than we used to. We have gone through trials and he has never been unfaithful to us. He has proved his faithfulness to us over and over and over. So now we're stronger about believing for the future trials, right? So our experience with hardship has prepared us for the hardships of the future. Okay. It's just like graduating from the first grade to the second grade. By the time you're in the ninth grade, you don't have first grade math tests. The only people that have first grade math tests that are 13, 14, 15 years old are people that's mentally disturbed because we've gone grown past that. So the trials that God has you in now will get hotter. They'll get more severe. Just like when you were in, when you first came to Christ, you thought she was going to pass out and die with the trials that God gave you back then. And you didn't die. You were able to go through them. Okay, well, you're not going to die with these either. You're going to go through it. But they're infinitely harder now than they used to. Why? Because in every phase, God wants you on your face before him crying for mercy. And until you get there, you're not learning from the trial. You're not learning from the trial. And so God will let saved people go bankrupt until they learn not to spend more money than they make. Yeah, and like my football coach, we're going to run that play till we get it right. So you keep going and keep going, keep going, keep going, keep having financial problems, keep having financial problems, keep having fin You say, wow, maybe I ought to live within my means. And it's like the heavens open. Right. Well, I've got high blood pressure, high cholesterol, 
my triglycerides are off the chart, blah, blah, blah. Well, quit sticking sweet rolls down your throat. This is hard, see. Yeah, it is. I'm not talking about the food. I'm talking about... Right. And so, so God is merciful. God is merciful. He loves you. Do you ever get to where this doesn't bother you? I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, not yet. It's, I'm 52 it's years into it. Your preaching still bothers you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I sit there and go, how do I, how was I saved and how do I possibly stay saved? I mean, people say, well, I love God. That's why I'm saying, well, why do you love God? Where'd that come from? You rub the two sticks of your free will together with your self-determination and created a love for God inside yourself? Baloney. That's arrogance. That's atheism. That's blasphemy. God gave me a gift for love for himself. So, so it's a gift. He's, the, the love of the truth is a gift, is it not? We have to receive it. And I don't think I love the truth enough. So I'm, I'm, that's what prayer's for, right? right? I go to God. God, help me. I don't love the truth enough. Give me a greater love for the truth. That's we should be infinitely more worried about our sin than we are about who's sitting in the White House. And we're not. Look, look, you can look on Facebook. People are posting all the time. Well, I, when, are, when are people going to wake up and realize that, we, that, that they need to repent and get right with God? Well, are you right with God? Are you right with God? Well, yeah, me and the Dallas Cowboys. I'm just saying, it's not like everybody else is bad, but you're okay. That's not church. That's not Christianity. We need to spend infinitely more time looking at ourselves than we do other people and their sins. It's easy to see everybody else's sin. Doesn't even take salvation to do that. Doesn't take the Holy Spirit. Doesn't take a move of God. Doesn't take the Bible. You can always see where somebody's messing up. That's a piece of cake. The world does that. It takes God to show me myself and then, and then let me be so angry and so ashamed of my wickedness that it draws me, it, it, it compels me to repent. If I don't think it's that big a deal, I won't repent. I'll keep doing it. And then you know what will happen later on? You'll justify it. And then what happens later on? You'll promote it. And you will, why, why do church people become a cheerleader for perverted marriages? How'd they get there? Well, they quit saying it was wrong first. Then they said, it, well, so, you know, just love. And then pretty soon they're cheerleading for it. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. The next chapter, he's living downtown. That's the process of sin and temptation. I am, I'm angry at myself because I keep falling for some of the same stuff. What is wrong with me that I can't seem to overcome? Yeah. Look, the Bible talks about people that got saved and they used to be bad, and it says, what zeal 
Okay, now that they're redeemed, they're passionate about their former sins. That made Zacchaeus go and pay back four times what he had stolen. Jesus didn't say that to him. He he volunteered that. Okay, now that's what will happen. That's what will happen. Nothing nothing is too big a sacrifice. Nothing. You're willing to do anything. See, what are the fruits of the new birth? You love God. Well, how does what does that look like? You, 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 you tip your hat once a week on Sundays to Jesus for a couple of hours? That's loving God? Really? <laughs> I don't think so. So, there's a zeal in that. Zeal has to do with passion. Passion has to do with our emotions, and it has to do with, with either exquisite joy or anger. One of the things that my prayers were, you know, the first two or three weeks after I got saved, my constant prayer before God was, help me to burn my bridges that connect me to the to the past life I used to live. I want to burn my bridges. You're not thinking about going back, are you? You don't ever want to go back, right? All right, burn your bridge. Why, why is the bridge still standing? Blow it up, tear it down. Get rid of the connections to that former life. So I quit listening to that music. I quit using the terminology that I used. I quit dressing the way I was dressing that, that elicited that kind of life. There was a radical transformation, so much so that everybody thought I'd lost my mind. My parents, my brother, my grandparents, everybody thought I'd lost my mind. This, this guy, I, I was in the student union at Jeff Davis Junior College, and that's where you have your lunch. You got, they got the food there, and all a bunch of kids are in there, and they're eating, and they're talking, and they're studying, and whatnot. And the music is playing. Well, I wasn't saved a couple of months, and I was tempted with music. Music tempted me because I had sung those songs and I had played those records when I was doing things that were wrong. And certain music was for certain sins in my book. And so I had taken, I had, back then you could buy an album for three bucks, 250. I had over $300 worth of albums and I had this super duper stereo player where you could put like 10 of those things. That was my, uh, that was my uh, early technology. You could put like 10 albums at a time and it would drop down and play and then drop down and play and drop down and play. You could play 10 albums at a time, which was all the time you had to sleep because by that you're still on about the fifth album when, when you woke up the next morning. So all night long, that music was playing in the background in my ears. So even though I was asleep, I was feeding on that stuff. And, and so I was in the cafeteria in the student union, and I was really struggling to serve the Lord. I was really weak. I, I felt like a little, you see little pictures of little, little deer when they're first born. Their legs are unsteady, and they're trying to walk. That's how I felt. Very unsteady, very weak. And this music started playing where I had done terrible things in, in tune with that music. And I didn't know what to do. I was getting tempted to sin right there in the student union. I was being tempted to sin. So I had a choice. I could stop my ears and try to study or I could run out or, or I did what I did. I got down on my knees right there in front of everybody and cried out to God that God would help me not sin because I'm listening to that music. I didn't know. I wasn't trying to show off. Wasn't trying to be, a, and everybody's looking at me like this, talking about me, laughing at me, pointing at me. I was trying not to sin. I didn't know what else to do. 
So I got away from as much stuff as I could get away from, but you go in the elevator in a bank and it's playing on the elevator music. I mean, it's everywhere you go. It's hard to not drive down the road and close your eyes because the billboards are so sinful. You can't go down Highway 90 in the summertime. You can't go down Highway 90 in the summertime if you're a man. You can't do it. They don't have enough clothes on to flag down a wheelbarrow. So why is a man driving up and down Highway 90? You're not down there to, to meditate. You're not down there to pray. You're down there to lust. Right. What do you think? Why do you think they put on that stuff? They want you to look. I got a question. Uh, what if all men were saved? I'm just saying, just think about this. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But what if all men got saved? Could they drive down 90 after that? Why would you want to? I mean, they have both. I mean... Saved is meaning, uh, not well, I mean, I've been on the beach preaching the gospel to these people. I'll do that. But after a while, there, there's a line. I don't know where the line is, but I know where the line is for me. And I don't want to, I've got enough temptation that comes to me anyway. I don't want to create temptation that I don't have to. So I'm not interested in watching videos of women that don't have any clothes on because either you're a robot, a homosexual, or you like girls. That's your three choices. And if you like girls, you're attracted to the female body. I mean, and what you should be able to do is what I remember as a little bitty boy in, in uh, kindergarten when girls wore dresses and they were sweet and they were pretty. And that's how we looked at girls. That's pretty. You look pretty today. You look nice today. You compliment a woman for her God-given gift of beauty that she has accentuated with makeup and, and jewelry and a certain attire. But when a woman dresses provocatively, she knows what she's doing. And if I'm going to go to hell because I look in lust, she's going to go to hell for helping me to lust. So if she's saved, I'm not talking about women have to wear croaker sacks. I'm not saying that. But it matters that you're revealing the part of your body that is reserved for your husband. Well, the Bible says that you abstain from all appearance. That's what it says. And make no provision right. for the flesh. Right. And so women know what they're putting on, and they know why they're wearing what they're wearing, and they do it on purpose. And, and most of it's wrong. And the clothing designers, most of them are homosexuals, and they don't like women. So they, they make women look cheap. They don't make women look elegant and beautiful. There's a, there's a gift of beauty that God gave female. All females have the gift of beauty. All of them do. And when they combine that with a good heart, a godly heart, and you combine that with discretion, that she carries herself like a lady. Everybody knows what that looks like. And I'm not talking about you have to wear white gloves to go to the post office. I'm talking about the, the pinnacle of femininity. And you know what? what? There's, a, there's a, a lady that does uh, Bible studies and whatnot for young girls. And so she asked this group, I saw the video, and you've got all these young girls sitting on the floor, and she's got this blackboard, and she said, now I want every one of you to give me an attribute of the man you want to marry. You know, tall, dark, handsome, rich, Nice car, cute rear end, uh, you know, all these attributes. She, she writes them on the, on the thing. 
Now, then she turns around and says, now, what in the world would a man who has all this going for him, why in the world would he want you to be his wife? And they go, they're right. See, if a man's got all this, he doesn't want a tramp. He doesn't want a trollop. He doesn't want somebody that everybody sees everything on her. He wants a lady. He wants an elegant, discreet, dis, a woman with discretion that carries herself with dignity. That's what a man like that's looking for, which is why a lot of those guys are single right now. And they got millions of dollars and they're not married. They're not about to hook up with somebody that's going to be faithful for 30 seconds and then go with somebody else. So, so be the kind of a woman that would attract a man like that. And then she, the man does the reverse to the, to the boys. What, what, a woman that's got all that going for her, why would she want you for a husband? And so be the kind of a man that would attract a lady, that would attract an elegant, dignified woman to be your wife. See, you're not looking for a mate. You're looking for a, the mother of your children. You're looking for your, your helpmate that's going to go with you through the trials of life. So there's a guy named um, uh, Ken Tada, T-A-D-A, and he married Johnny Erickson, who was a quadriplegic. He married her after she became a quadriplegic. Every day of their life, and they've been married 40-something years now, every day of their marriage, he has to get her up and bathe her and dress her and feed her. Every day, every single day. And she's in horrific pain because she's been in a wheelchair for 50-something years, and they, she's got a ministry. She goes all over the world singing and praising God and preaching the gospel to little girls. And that Ken is right with her. And he's one of the happiest men I've ever seen in my life. The joy on that man's face is, and he's, he can, you can, you can, you can fake it in public for a couple of days. You can't fake it for 40 something years. So you, I'm getting ready to marry somebody and the thought should come to your mind. Now she's going to have a car wreck tonight and she, her face is going to be horribly disfigured in a fire. Is that your, is that the prize of your life? Is that the queen of your home? Is that the love of your life? And if it's not, you never loved her anyway. You never loved her anyway. So don't marry her. But don't fall in love with people you don't love. And so what are you looking for? I heard Rhonda praying. I saw Rhonda as a young woman. She had, when I was go, going to school, we didn't have spring breaks. We had to actually go to school in the spring. Then they had these spring breaks for three days. Now they got two weeks, I think, for spring break, whatever it is. So Rhonda was, had spring break for three days. You know what this young lady would do for three days? She would fast on water for three days, lock herself in the church and pray day and night. And I listened to her pray one time. I said, that's my wife. I couldn't care less what about, she, she happens to be gorgeous. She still is. But I won't, that's the mother of my children. And I'm laying in bed. It wasn't long after I got married. I'm laying in bed about 5 o'clock in the morning, and I hear this noise. It woke me up, and she's in the living room walking up and down. We didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have a heater. We didn't have a washing machine. We didn't have a dryer when we got married. 
So she washed clothes in a sink by hand. She hung them up to dry. And when it was raining outside, she hung them up inside to dry. I had to chop firewood in my backyard every night in the winter so she could burn enough firewood for that one day. And I had to do it every single night by the headlights of my truck. Didn't have a chainsaw, had an axe. On Saturdays, I drove up to the pole barn up in McHenry and got the tips of the poles and brought them back, dumped them in my backyard. That's how we did. And, and I woke up, I heard this noise, and I woke up, and she's in the living room. Oh, God, would you see Blair? God, would you help him? God, oh, God, God, would you move in his life? God, Lord, God, would you help us? God, and I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm in the bed just weeping. That's the kind of woman that I married. Okay, now, now, the Bible says that a beautiful woman that is without discretion is like a fine gold ring in a pig snout. Better to dwell on, on the roof than to live in a house with a brawling woman. What God Almighty said. So, so women are called by God because they're women to do certain things. Men are called by God for no other reason than they're men to do certain things. And guess what? Those things are different. So if you didn't know any better, you think God wanted a distinction between men and women. How about that? And so what's going on in our country today because people are suppressing the truth, they're confused about men and women. They don't know what a man is. Well, what is a woman? What is The United States Congress doesn't know what a woman is. And we're, we're in, forget the finances, forget, forget welfare. The men who lead our, the people who lead our country don't know what a woman is. We're in trouble. And that's because God has sent them a deluding influence so they believe what is wrong. And so they all may be judged. That word judge in verse 12 has a very distinct, because it's a different word than the normal word. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Bible talks about that we can judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. Those two words, judge and judged, are two different words. So that we all may be damned. So that we all, they all may be damned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That's what that verse means. So it is God's will to damn the people who do not love the truth. That's what that says. That's what that passage says. So now if you know that's God's will to damn everybody, damn eternally in hell, everybody who does not love the truth, what do you think our prayer should be like? Oh God, help me love the truth, right? Amen. That's, that's how you get there. Help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. So, amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Page 22 at the bottom. What is the truth that we are suppressing? What is the truth that godly, ungodly people suppress? The answer is given in the following verses. Read 19 through 21. I think, Sister Charlotte, it's your turn. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. 
for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God, there's your first clue. The truth being suppressed is something that is known about God. Then Paul got very specific. Here's the truth that is known about God from the created world. Two things, God's eternal power and God's divine nature. And Paul said those two things have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, the ungodly people who suppress this truth, are without excuse. Now that means that there is an objective truth about God that we suppress. He's eternal power and full deity. But then he told us, you say, well, I, I didn't know about any of that stuff. Well, what did you know? What did you know? You knew how to operate the app on your phone. You knew about the Kardashians. You knew about your favorite football team. You knew how to plant petunias. You knew how to, how to raise uh, okra in your garden. You knew, you knew things. You just didn't know about God. Why didn't you know about the most important thing in the universe? Why? Because you didn't want to. That's where we are today. That's exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. exactly. Now, you can't, you, there's no way to get around that. You didn't do it because you didn't want to. Well, well, wait a minute, Brother Blair. Why do saved people want to? God changed my want to. That's the new birth. That's the distinction. It's not about going to church and becoming a better you like Joel Osteen preaches. It's not about that. It's about being supernaturally, miraculously, sovereignly, and eternally born all over again with a new nature. And that new nature has ingredients already in it. One of the ingredients that the new nature has in it is a love for God and a love for the things of the Spirit of God. So you begin to love God. Now, like I said, at first you're like a little deer and your legs are wobbly and you're weak, but that's why God created the church so we can wrap our arms around new converts and strengthen them and encourage them and pray with them. That's why God created this thing called prayer, so we can gather together and pray one for another. That's why God said, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, so we can stimulate one another to love and to good works, so we get to know each other. We know where our weaknesses are. That's where God said periodically to confess your sins one to another, so we know what Brother Bob has its his weakness. We know what sister Susie is, is struggling with and we pray for them and we encourage them and they know where we're struggling. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings that supposedly were about, well, confess your sins one to another. That's been watered down. Confess your faults one to another. That's been watered down to, well, we'll pray for me because I want to draw closer to the Lord. Well, who doesn't? No, no. I love money and I know that's wrong. And I need help with that. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe God will do something in my life that will help me not love money. Huh? So 
So maybe I need to put more value on Jesus and less on stuff. So pray for me that I will be like that. Okay? That's a sin. It says confess your sins. Humble yourself. Expose yourself to gossip. Don't be worried about what people are going to say behind your back. Obey the Bible and confess your sins one to another. And then pray for one another that you may be healed. Don't you want to stop sinning? So all these cop-out prayers, well, I, you know, I just, I love Jesus, but I want to love him more. That's not a sin. Well, it is, but I mean, that's not what he was talking about. Specifically, what are you struggling with? Well, I'm not really struggling with anything. Then you're not saved. Why would I think you're saved? All saved people struggle. Every saved person I ever met was struggling. If the shoe fits, wear it. It took, it took two times of me losing everything I had, uh-huh. everything, uh-huh. for me to be convinced that it's just stuff. It's just stuff. And it's not going with me. Right. Amen to that. Good. And so that was mercy, wasn't it? Yes. yes. So the destruction and the removal of your things was God's mercy towards you. And Why do I, they call it a disaster? I, I was supposed to get get something that I didn't get. Right. Someone else in my family got it. Right. Had I gotten it, it would have been out in the Gulf of Mexico. But now, whoever got it, it's still back. Right, right. And that's fine with me. Right. Now, it took, took now, a while, but that's fine with me. So you are trying to convince me, my sister, that a national tragedy, a regional tragedy, where people died and where much damage was done was a blessing from God in your life. You see how weird we are? This is why people laugh at Christians. But that's the truth. And so if God chose to give you criticism or cancer, it's irrelevant. If God chooses to make your life easy or hard, it's irrelevant. God knows what you need. And so God will give you what, exactly what you need to put you in the place he wants you. Right? Amen. So... So, all of us, all of us. And so, I'm really looking at you right now, your whole family. Amen. Praise God. Well, should we expect any less? See, I don't believe that a person who suffers, if, if, if you're, if you're in leadership in the church and you're suffering, but you don't suffer very well and you suffer like the world suffers, I think you're not qualified to lead. I think that's part of being a leader. You don't just know the Bible. You know how the Bible works in your daily life. Yeah, but you need to believe that. You need to really believe that, that that's just true. This is not coming out of, out of, out of a black hole in space. This is real. This is this God's, and, and, and this is not the last trial. So, you know, it's, it's, it, well, God just beating you up because he likes to beat people up. Well, if that's what you think about God, you're not saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. So, so be careful when you start being biblical. Because when you start getting biblical, you understand why people suffer. You understand. And it's not a surprise. And, and many times it's other people. Not just you. Right. That's exactly right. So now, it's a whole lot easier to sit in church on Sunday morning and hear a sermon on suffering 
than it is to suffer. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so thank God that there is a theology of suffering that has been laid before the people of this church way before the trial starts. Because every one of us are going to face this if you're saved. Now, that means there is an objective truth about God that we suppress, his eternal power and full deity. But then he told us that there is another subjective truth, which is the response we are supposed to make or give or have to this truth about God. It says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. In the context, they became futile in their speculations about God. That's what the subject is. So they begin to invent things about God that the Bible doesn't teach. And that became their theology. Okay, so the, the right response is that we should glorify and thank God. So here's the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. There is a God. He is the creator of all things and therefore is not a God or one of many gods, but the God. And this one God is powerful, more powerful than everything else because he made everything else. And this one powerful God is eternal because there was nothing outside of himself that could bring himself into being. Therefore, we, God's creatures, exist to display God's glory and not to compete with him for glory. And we must exist in absolute dependence on him. We do not supply God. God supplies us. And therefore, we are to live in constant gratitude for all of this. And the distinction between so many people in the modern church who are more than willing to thank God for all the trophies they get and all the money they've made and all the accolades they get People in the Bible thank God for everything he took away from them. I mean, I'm just wondering if people will start doing this when they lose everything. The people in Hebrews did. Hebrews 10.34 did. They accepted the confiscation of their goods with joy because they knew they had a more enduring and a, and a better possession in heaven. So, if I don't accept things that I lose with joy, it means that I have not become convinced that what's over there is better than everything down here. I honestly think that things down here are better. So I remember as a young man, when I first got saved, there was a man in the church that did, in fact, it was Rhonda's father, who uh, did yard work. And it seemed like it was all the young men that came to, to church ended up working for him because he was looking for good help. So I went to work for him. And back then, this is the early 70s, um, nobody put sod in their yards. Nobody. They couldn't afford it. So they put grass seed and we watered the grass seed. The average house was like 1,300 square feet. Little small little rooms and little small little closets. As the, as the years went on, there was better insulation. There was better building materials. We had to put more clips on the rafters and the, and the joists and the studs. 
because the hurricane kept tearing everything up. Used to be we had every other stud had a, had a metal brace on it. Now all of them have to have a metal brace. Then you had to put footers in and you had to put steel that came up from the foundation into the rat seal. The, so the foundation was tied to the rat seal. The rat seal was tied to the studs. The studs was toes, uh, tied to the top plate. The top plate was tied to the rafter. So in order to blow the roof off, you had to tear the, the foundation up. That's why houses don't get torn up in hurricanes anymore. They're better built. We fuss about the codes, but the reality is their houses are better built. Houses with a gable end get torn up faster and easier than a house that doesn't have a gable end. Because the, the wind catches in that gable part and rips the house off, rips, rips, rips the roof off. So if you don't have a gable end, the wind goes over the top of the shingles. So we've learned, and so things progress. We have air, I remember the little side window on the car that you opened up to let the air come in when it was raining so you could get air on your windshield so your windshield wouldn't fog up, right? You can't buy a car like that anymore. We got air conditioning, we got temperature control. Good night, the seat over here is a different temperature than the seat, and you're both in the front seat. It's amazing, right? You got... Your, your heat, your seat is air conditioned. Your steering wheel is heated. It's unbelievable, right? And so we get better. And these are kingdom blessings because everything is progressing in a general direction where life is better. Life all over the world is better. That's a particular eschatological view. So things are getting better. There's less people starving to death. There's fewer people dying with dinghy worm. There's more people alive from malaria and cancers and whatnot. So things are progressing. Okay. So, so is seen. And, and well, that's what I was going to tell you. But all of that, those are God's blessings. And we should praise God for trifocals and quadrifocals and glasses that, that turn dark when you're out in the sun and all those beautiful push a button and you get cool, push a button, you get warm. It's amazing, right? And we and those that's common grace. That's what common grace. Antibiotics, uh, uh, t- Tamiflu. I was talking to somebody last night. Had the flu. I said, "Go get some Tamiflu. You'll be better in two days. No more ten days in the bed with 106 degree fever. You can, you can go back to work in three days. Your fever, the Tamiflu works. It works. Um, they think they can create a vaccine now to stop cancer. They're trying. Those you can't you can't unring the bell. These are going to continue to go. Okay. So where does the church fit in with all of this? There's also more sin. Technology has helped us to sin better, sin more often, sin to the point where it's so prevalent that people don't even think about it anymore. They don't even talk about it anymore. I'm going to get into that in my sermon this morning. Those are sanitized sins, acceptable sins. We're all been out of shape about Abortion or world poverty, but we're not worried about a, a serial adultery or the epidemic of divorce. And if you don't abort a child, then you abuse the child. If you don't abuse the child, then you change its its gender. If you don't do that, then you then you throw the child in a in a in a, 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 a government run school that indoctrinates the child not to believe in God. Children don't have a chance anymore in the United States. So these are all things going on. So there's more sin. And so the church is alive and well in all this tech. So the, the, the 60s, they told us that technology was going to make the church irrelevant. 
irrelevant. We won't need church anymore. Science fiction tells you that with the advancement of technology and government and medicine, every problem of mankind can be solved. That's what science fiction tells you. It's a lie. There's people still going back into paganism. We're not becoming a more secularized society. That's not true. We're becoming pagan. And we're worshiping false gods, what we're still worshiping. As the great Reformed theologian Bob, Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. And so they're suppressing the truth. They don't want the truth in unrighteousness. And so it's, it's our job to speak the truth in love, but speak it loud, speak it clearly, speak it unapologetically, speak it often, and speak it to as many people as possible every day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, God, to love the truth. Change whatever needs to be changed in us that we may love your truth so as to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.